sometimes it's a matter of be careful what you asked for, you know. But it really is incredible to kind of see comics taken seriously as art in a way that we could only kind of dream about years ago. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. In our last episode, we had a conversation with Susanna Ryan, creator of the comic Instagram series, Seattle Walk Report, and who recently published a graphic storybook, Secret Seattle. Today, we dip a thick black Sharpie marker deeper into the world of artistic and graphic storytelling, thanks to a locally based publisher of classic comic strip anthologies, manga, alternative magazines, and more. With World Headquarters tucked into Seattle's mostly residential Maple Leaf neighborhood, plus a lovely bookstore operating from Seattle's gritty Georgetown community, our guest is local and global, and they're a literary treasure you may not even know about, but deserve to. So today we'll explore how a scrappy little business has persisted and thrived sometimes solely on the passions and will of a small group of friends working assiduously over decades, and for the sake of a committed fan base that spans the world. We'll look at how a global brand not obviously associated with the Pacific Northwest wound up here and how, over the years, it has contributed to various cultural movements and trends in the city. And finally, we'll look at how comics and graphic novels, a conjunction of art and literature, has become a uniquely powerful method of telling stories. And stick around at the end of today's podcast. Our guests will reveal a historic milestone for one of their flagship publications, and he's brought a rare self-published edition from 1981 that will be replicated soon. Let's drive so let's welcome our guest today, Eric Reynolds, vice president of Seattle-based publisher Fantagraphics. Hey, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Good, welcome. Thank you very much. So why Seattle? I mean, Seattle has fish and chips, so you could get Ivers. We're into mountain climbing, so there's REI. But graphic novels want to better understand the connection between Seattle, because I wouldn't necessarily expect the headquarters to be here. Well, there were a few reasons involved. Fanographics had moved around a lot in the late 70s, early 80s. And into the mid-80s, it settled in the San Fernando Valley, north of Los Angeles. And for any number of reasons, you know, you might expect California wasn't really working for them. It was expensive. And they were casting about for places to move to. And there were two cartoonists that we published, Peter Bagg and Jim Woodring, who both lived in Seattle. And long story short, they just started lobbying for us to move up here. It was cheaper at that time. Uh, it was you know, incredibly cheaper compared to Southern California. And wasn't a place that they were looking to end up, but... Once it popped up on the radar, it seemed like, hey, this could be, this could be it. And who was the core team at the time? Yeah, I came in 93. At that point, the company was run by Gary Groth and Kim Thompson. Gary founded the company in 1976, and Kim joined a couple of years later. And Seattle just ended up being the place that stuck. Kim Thompson, I had read that he'd used his inheritance to help fund Fantagraphics at some point. Well, the whole history of Fantagraphics is, you know, has stories like that of borrowing money from parents, you know, refinancing a house that the company owned, 
you know, by hook or by crook. In the sense it was a startup business and... They were you know. teenagers when they started. Oh, really? Um, I mean, it was really born out of comic fandom. They both, um, and myself included, you know, participated in comics fandom from a pretty young age and self-published you know, fanzines about comics. And it just kind of, you know, grew organically from there. The company was primarily founded on the basis of a magazine called The Comics Journal, which was a trade publication about both the industry of comics and the art form of comics. And it was a pretty unique publication at the time in that it was not strictly fanish. It ran critical pieces about you know, popular comics of the era, kind of gained a reputation as a bit of a muckraking publication in the field. And the comics kind of grew organically from there in terms of putting your money where your mouth is and saying, you know, okay, all these comics suck. Here's what we think comics are capable of. Then tell us about your joining. How did you get involved in Fantagraphics? I was a fan. I worked in a comic book store from about the age of 15 to 20. Um, Where was that? University of California, Irvine. I was the staff cartoonist and editor at the college newspaper at UCI. And basically, I was planning on becoming a journalist. And I realized at some point, you know, in my undergraduate years that that meant probably interning at a small town newspaper covering stuff that, you know, you ultimately don't necessarily want to cover. So I was casting about as, a, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. I, I had been a lifelong comics fan, but had really never considered it as any type of career. Um, it not only didn't seem plausible, it just almost didn't even occur to me. But I was a big fan of Fanagraphics at that time. And I was a big fan of the Comics Journal. And the Comics Journal ran journalism. And I decided to call up the company and see if there was any opportunity to, to intern at Fanagraphics. How old were you at the time? Uh, 20. Oh, wow. That's very bold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally had lived in the newspaper office and on campus, basically. And I had gone to the comic book store at lunch that day. There was a comic book shop in Irvine, very close to the campus. And I had bought an issue of, I think, Daniel Klaus's 8-Ball. And just a light bulb went off. You know, there was an address and a phone number in the indicia at the, you know, on the inside front cover of the comic book. And I just called it. Who answered? <laughs> it was a person who um, actually left the company soon thereafter, an editor named Robert Boyd, and who's still an art critic in the Houston area. And uh, he basically said, sure, sounds good. Um, I had a unique skill set. I had, you know, journalistic skills and a pretty pretty broad knowledge of American comics for a 20-year-old having worked in a comic book store for, you know, a quarter of my life up to that point. Okay. And then how did you get actually connected as an employee or? So I interned for the summer. At the end of the summer, uh, one of the editors of the magazine left and Gary offered me the job. And Again, I had, I had not intended to stay in Seattle, but I really loved being here that summer. Seattle was a pretty darn exciting place for a 20, 21-year-old. Very exciting place to be as a young person. Why? Oh, because of everything that was going on. <laughs> it was cheap to live here. I was a huge music fan. I was also a DJ in college. And the music scene was, you know, the best in the country at that point. 
what bands were kind of alive and who did you see? And Well, you know, I saw most of the, you know, the bigger bands. Um, I saw Nirvana a couple of times. Um, but in my world, I was a big fan of bands like Gas Huffer, uh, the Young Fresh Fellows, um, the Posies, uh, the Fallouts, the Model Rockets, Pop Defect. I think bands that, you know, people my age who lived here remember fondly, even mm. if they aren't, you know, national names. Well, and what were the venues that you listened to this music? Really all over town. Capitol Hill and, and Belltown were probably the hubs, but also Ballard Ave. I mean, you had at that time the Crocodile. You had what was then Moe's, which is now New Moe's. Uh, there was the venue down in Pioneer Square, kind of under the viaduct, the OK Hotel. Uh-huh. Um you had the tractor in Ballard. Uh, I've lived in Ballard for 30 years, so Ballard Ave, you know, is certainly a, a place with a lot of fond memories, but also a lot of time on Capitol Hill and in Belltown. So tell us about your career path through Fantagraphics. You landed this job at 20, you were in Seattle, you loved living here, and then kind of what unfolded for you being part of Fanta? Yeah, well, like I said, I had this kind of unique skill set. And even though I was there at first to write journalism for this magazine, I was really passionate about the art form and about the artists that Fantagraphics was publishing. And there was a publicist working for the company at the time, Larry Reed, a kind of notorious fellow in the local arts community. Um, He left the company and there was another publicist after him that lasted a year or two before landing a job at Sub Pop. And although she did a very good job for, you know, what she was given at the time, you know, the hand that she was dealt, she was not passionate about comics in the same way that I was and didn't have the, the kind of broader vocabulary for talking about this stuff. And I just basically thought I I can do that better, I think, uh, with no disrespect to her. You know, I just was in sync with the material in a way that that not too many others were at the company, I think. So I, I transitioned from journalism to publicity. I was very aware of how unusual of a move that was. I was not ever looking to be a publicist. I would never be a publicist for literally anything else that I can think of. I had a business card at the time, and I gave myself my title, which was official shill and paid apologist, kind of, you know, taking the position, you know, with some humor, tongue firmly in cheek. But I knew that this stuff could get out to a broader audience than it was because at the time comics were really relegated to these mom and pop specialty comic book stores which primarily catered to superheroes to the what what we called the mainstream comics Marvel and DC basically and we were doing the kind of avant-garde stuff that frankly a lot of these shops which were curated you know by the tastes of the the owners were hostile towards they you know not only really didn't want to carry it, but actively felt threatened on it by it on some level. And a lot of it existed kind of in opposition to what they were making a living on. Uh-huh. So I knew that there was a broader audience outside of that in, you know, whether it was 
fans of alternative music like I liked at the time or fans of prose literature or film and began, you know, we, we, we were one of the very first comic book publishers to actively promote our books to the broader media. This was the grunge era, so-called. So can you explain a little bit about the relationship between Fantagraphics and Sub Pop, you know, mechanically, but also between alternative comics and alternative music? Yeah, there was definitely a correlation and overlap, uh, certain creative synergy. I think it was three-pronged. I think there was the local comic scene, the local music scene, and the local alternative media scene, namely The Rocket, The Stranger, The Seattle Weekly. Those things all cross-populated in terms of artists working for the newspapers and the musicians getting covered by the same people in the newspapers and the artists doing art for records. And it was a small enough community back then that there really was like genuine overlap. And, you know, I think Fanographics and Sub Pop are somewhat analogous, you know, in terms of benefiting from not only having a vision, but also being in the right place at the right time a little bit. Unfortunately, comics and even books and literature in general will never hold the same cultural weight as music. Uh, you know, Fanographics will never become a brand in the same way that Sub Pop has, where it's almost become like a, you know, Von Dutch or something. It's just, it's become a logo in a way that's really amazing. I, I'm still kind of mesmerized every time I go to SeaTac and see that Sub Pop store. Uh-huh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then I moved here with, you know, wide-eyed and with a huge appetite for all that stuff. And again, it was at a time when I could kind of, even as an outsider, sort of insert myself in the community and, and make a lot of these connections. So did any of your artists contribute to um, album covers or any art kind oh, yeah. of within that movement? Or can you share kind of how well, effective was that or who Well, who sure. Like during that time, Dan Klaus created the punky character for Sub Pop. It was kind of the unofficial mascot for Sub Pop. Uh, and was doing covers for other Sub Pop bands like Urge Overkill. Peter Bag was all over the place. Peter, you know, Peter actually lived in Seattle. So he was doing stuff left and right for bands like Tad. There was a lot of just cross-pollination of creativity that all kind of fueled each other in a way. And, you know, as a young cartoonist, it, there were actually opportunities to work as, you know, not just making comics, which never makes much money, but also working as an illustrator, whether for, again, for newspapers or record labels. And uh, it just, you know, it was just just enough to to spawn this massive migration of talent uh, in the early 90s. So let's talk about a few of these artists. Peter Bagg, maybe for one, if you can share us a little bit about his catalog and his relationship with Fantagraphics over the years. Sure. I would say the Fantagraphics in the 80s was defined by Love and Rockets by Gilbert and Jaime Hernandez, who are still doing the comic. It's the 40th anniversary this year, and they are the the kind of kings of Fantagraphics Mountain. The 90s were really the decade of Peter Bagg and Daniel Klaus. Um, we called it the alternative comics era. Daniel Klaus started doing a 
one-man anthology comic called Eight Ball. And then Peter Bagg was doing something more character and narrative-driven, focusing on these slackers, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, living in Seattle in their early 20s. And it was infused with the music scene. You know, literally in the comics, they go see Tad at one point. And um, those two comics really kind of defined that era. They became real cultural touchstones for a lot of people. They influenced, I think, a lot of comedians of that time. You know, you'd see their books popping up as product placement in kind of hipster culture. And Peter is kind of an interesting story. He's from Poughkeepsie, New York, grew up mostly in in and around New York, was living in New York City with his wife. And his wife's sister married a guy who ended up playing for the Seattle Seahawks and becoming a pretty well-known player for the Seahawks. His name's Mike Tice. And Peter's wife, Joanne, and her sister had long talked about opening up a delicatessen, a New York-style delicatessen. And I think because Joanne's sister and her husband were, you know, making pretty good money, he was a professional football player, they were able to start this deli and Pete and Joanne moved out here to do that. And they operated this deli for, I think, about 10 years. It was in Redmond. And Peter and Joanne for a time were even living with Mike and his wife, Diane, while Mike was playing on the Seahawks, which is just kind of crazy because Peter is this, you know, countercultural icon. And you think of, you know, him, you know, immersed in this world of of NFL players coming in and out of the house. He has a lot of great funny stories about that. But uh, so that's how he ended up here and then indirectly, you know, had an active hand in Fantagraphics moving up here. So in a weird, funny way, like the NFL... Uh, enabled fanographics in, in this whole comic scene in Seattle. So, Jim Woodring... When I first got the notion of asking you to be a guest here, I went to the Northeast Seattle Public Library and checked out, you know, a whole stack. Sat down with my eight-year-old boy who loves graphic novels and then set this up as bedtime reading (laughs) and was entirely perplexed. Um, And I know they say great art is inscrutable and not obvious, right? But just the unique vision of Jim, it wasn't something I could clearly articulate, you know, or share with my son. Sure, yeah. So can you, yeah, talk about Jim. Jim is a visionary. He really is one of the truest artists I've ever met in my life. Uh, absolutely brilliant guy, phenomenally gifted cartoonist, who also has the you know spiritual and visual imagination to to do amazing things with it. One of the most incredible things about Jim is almost all of his comics are wordless. They're silent. He's crafted this this universe that he calls the Unifactor that has, I think, rigid properties to it in his mind, even if the reader doesn't fully understand them. Nothing is done in them without a reason. There's a strict internal logic to all of it. But there's no words. He tells these stories visually, panel to panel. And a few years ago, he did a reading at the university bookstore for one of his new books. And he read from his written script 
for one of these wordless comics. And it was like, it was chilling. It was like some of the most beautiful prose I'd ever heard and nobody would ever read it. Mm. And it was, you know, this brilliant use of language used, you know, to tell a story without language, really wild stuff. The real world interests me only insofar as I can see this greater reality reflected in it, peering through it, causing it to fluoresce with its invisible emanations. Thus it is that Jim is the perfect title, the perfect act of misdirection, the perfect name for the perfect storm of perfectly awful follies which conceal in their stunted boyishness the chimes not of doom, but of the all-revealing present. So let's move forward to the 2000s. After this period of just musical and creative exuberance in Seattle, can you tell us a little bit about where Fantagraphics sort of shifted? Well, Fantagraphics' focus was always just on great cartooning, whatever that meant. So, you know, our, our kind of most well-known work at the time was this kind of contemporary alternative work, but we were also publishing vintage or archival classic comics collections, whether comic strips like Popeye and Little Orphan Annie or vintage underground comics by Robert Crumb or... So how did Fantagraphics, from a business standpoint, sort of become the publisher of choice for these sort of classic comics? And what unique insights or skills did you bring? You know, it happened somewhat organically or by happenstance. Sometimes these things happen just because the opportunity arises. You find, especially, you know, when you're talking about stuff that at the time was maybe 70 years old, uh, half the battle is just finding the work to reproduce from finding a collector who has the stuff, and then navigating whatever licenses are, are in play. And Prince Valiant was kind of a no-brainer just because Hal Foster, the creator of, of Prince Valiant, is one of the all-time great illustrators in comics. So he was definitely, you know, fit right into the kind of mission statement of Fanagraphics. And long story short, you know, we just started doing one at a time. It wasn't necessarily a focus on creating a product line or anything like that, but we did it. We did it well. And we established ourselves as being a good publisher for that stuff in terms of both reproducing it at the highest quality, but also providing a good historical or, or artistic context for it in terms of, you know, extra material essays in the book, things like that. And so I think it just happened over time that we just sort of became a natural home for that stuff to where stuff started getting pitched to us rather than us going out and finding it. I mean, I don't want to understate the fact that, you know, Fanagraphics did have a mission and a focus to kind of better comics as an art form. But at the same time, it's also a little shocking to me still, even after all these years, to realize just how rare that is in publishing, whether it's comics or not. I mean, these days you go into a comic book store and virtually everything on the shelves is just obvious uh, IP fodder for film or television mm. development. You know, there's not a lot of passion to my mind for the art form. The art form is just sort of a means to an end to something else. But that said, you know, it's not always easy to make a living doing this stuff. So, you know, you mentioned the erotic line which frankly at the time was just an attempt to pay the bills and help finance the 
quote unquote good stuff. Sex sells. Yeah, sex yeah. sells. And and we always were very conscious of the fact that we didn't want to do the typical genre entertainment that was happening in comics. We didn't want to do superheroes. We weren't particularly interested in sci-fi or fantasy. And thought, well, you know, we like sex more than those things. Yeah, and erotica is something a little bit on the margins, right? Yeah. Of sort of, yeah. Yeah, so. and you know, we don't we we still do publish some erotic work. We're publishing some great stuff this year. But we don't actually have that line of comics anymore. It was called Eros Comics. In fact, the funny thing is, is uh, in 2004, we started publishing The Complete Peanuts by Charles M. Schultz. We were the first to ever collect the entire 50-year you know, body of Peanuts all in one series of books, 25 books. And uh, Peanuts effectively replaced the pornography. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? It was, a, it was a good trade, if you ask me. So let's talk about the Georgetown store because you've been a publisher and, you know, assuming that you historically the works were sold through bookstores and, but then you opened up your own retail store. So how did that come about and when did that happen? The retail space opened, I guess now almost 15 years ago. I think it was 2008. So we're coming up on 15 years, which is really amazing. I never, ever would have expected it to last this long. We went in on it kind of as on a lark, uh, we share half of our retail space with Georgetown Records, a great used record store that's owned by a couple of guys who were friends with our then warehouse manager. And they had the entire space at that time. And they were struggling a little bit. This was essentially kind of a side business for these guys. They all had day jobs and were just kind of tag teaming their dream of you know having a record store. This is as I understand it. And... They were on the verge, I think, of having to give up the lease because they just couldn't afford to have a space what was then twice as big as what they have now. And they still have a good good size space. And somehow they and our, our then warehouse manager just started floating the idea like, oh, it'd be super cool if Fantagraphics you know, opened up a bookstore. You guys could have half the bookstore. We could have a record store. And our warehouse manager, Nico, at the time floated it to us and you know, we'd never even considered it. And long story short, the rent was pretty darn cheap at the time. And we decided, eh, what the hell? It afforded us an instant event space, basically. Mm. You know, because we're here, we constantly are trying to bring our authors through here when they're on book tours. And sad but true, not every author we publish, you know, is going to get an event at Elliott Bay. Mm. And so we wanted to have, uh, we loved the idea of having a space where we could host literally anybody we wanted to. Nice. And, you know, nobody could tell us otherwise. And we launched it and it's done well. It, um, you know, it certainly suffered through the pandemic, but over the last year, things have really picked up again. And I'm really grateful for it. Larry Reed does a great job running it and uh, curating the shows that we have there. And it's such a fun neighborhood. You know, it's one of the last great neighborhoods in Seattle, I think. But one of the coolest developments about that space is the amount of tourism we get of people going, you know, to or from the airport. That's really cool. I mean, when I moved here in the 90s, 
If you'd go to a party and you told somebody that you worked for Fantagraphics books or you worked in comic books, you would just get a blank stare. It was not cool. It was not anything that even anybody even knew anything about. If anything, they harbored some you know, strange uh, prejudices against the art form. You'd have to explain that, no, I'm not talking about Garfield or Dilbert or Spider-Man. I'm, you know, I'm talking about a mature uh, form of expression. And that has been really one of the most rewarding developments, of not just a, you know, in our bookstore, but just a, in terms of the cultural appreciation for comics in general. But it really kind of manifests in the bookstore where you know, Larry will tell me that you know, a group of Japanese tourists on their way back to Tokyo stopped at the bookstore and spent $200, you know. It's amazing to me. We ask our guests to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest, and I was wondering if we could ask you to do that. Well, we were talking about music earlier, and I mentioned that I've lived in Ballard for 30 years, and Ballard Ave is, you know, a a very important place to me, and, you know, I'm grateful that it still retains, you know, some of of what I've loved about it, uh, even as, you know, much of it has changed. But for me, in the 90s, you had The Sunset and Hattie's Hat and Connor Byrne and The Tractor, you know, you didn't even have to know what was going on there that night. You could just walk down and you knew something interesting was happening. <laughs> and then is there anything also, um, you know, from your experience at Fanta that revealed something to you about our region, our part of the country, that's unique or specific to the Northwest or Seattle in particular? Having lived here now for well over half my life, I I firmly identify as a Pacific Northwesterner. And one of the greatest sources of pride for me as a publisher, even though we're, you know, quote unquote, global brand, is publishing Northwest artists and publishing books that, you know, that do focus on the Northwest in some way that I feel we can give voice to and in a way that, you know, might not otherwise be given that opportunity. We published a great book last year called I Never Promised You a Rose Garden by uh, Portland cartoonist named Manny Murphy. And it's a story about the intersection of Gus Van Sant and specifically the filming of my own private Idaho and the white supremacy movement amongst a group of young boys in Portland in the 80s. Mm. And it's a phenomenal memoir. It's about the artist's love for Gus Van Sant and his films as a, an outsider, a closeted teen, and also an amazing work of journalism unpacking this really ugly part of Oregon's history and kind of threading it all together in a way that uh, nobody had ever done before and then did it as a comic. So that's just one example of a kind of book that when I read it, you know, I, I really loved it, but I also really wanted to publish it because I felt like you know, we are the Northwest Comics publisher. Like, we have to do this book. What's the greatest reward 
it seems like this has been a business that has required sacrifice. It's mission-driven, not really financially driven, and yet you've been also responsible for making it, you know, ensuring that it is financially sustainable. Yeah, it's, you know, if you're into it for the money, you're going to end up with a broken heart and an empty wallet pretty quick. You have to go into it, you know, for other reasons. And for me, the greatest thing is just working with great artists that I admire and, you know, just helping them kind of make their book a reality and make their book reflect, you know, what they ideally see in their heads when they're creating it, you know, bring, helping them just kind of bring that vision to life. And yeah, you know, the other, frankly, satisfying thing is the fact that we've managed to stick around and survive in Seattle, even as, you know, the city has moved in directions that aren't really, don't really enable us to mm to get by all the time. Yeah, a number of the artists we were talking about have left the area yeah. as well. Yeah, I know far too many artists who've moved away from Seattle over the last several years, and that that, that really saddens me, but it also kind of gives me a resolve to want to, you know, stick it out and and make Seattle work for us weirdos like it, <laughs> like it has, uh-huh. you know, and, and not give in to the, you know, encroaching gentrification and... Uh, encroachment of certain companies in the region. I asked our guests if they could bring in something to share with our listeners. Yeah. Um, Did you do that? I did. I brought in the very first self-published issue of Love and Rockets by Gilbert and Jaime and also their brother Mario Hernandez. Uh, This was self-published in 1981. Um, I'm not sure how many copies they printed, uh, but it sold for a dollar. It probably goes for a few hundred dollars now. And this is the comic that they sent to Fanographics to be reviewed in the Comics Journal, the, the magazine they were publishing. And they, as they tell it, they basically thought if they could get a good review in the Comics Journal, they could get a good review anywhere. And not only did they get a great review, but it led to Fanographics saying, you know, this is literally exactly the kind of comic we're talking about when we're describing this platonic ideal of what comics are capable of. And this was, and here it is. And uh, it led to, you know, a beautiful partnership that's still going strong now, 40 years later. Can you describe what those guys are like? Yeah, they're 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 artists and they're punk rock in uh, I think a, a very true sense. They are two guys who have like fanographics, never capitulated to market demands or any notions of what they think the audience wants. They've had the confidence in themselves to just pursue their visions as as they want to tell them, and even you know in the face of a lot of commercial reasons not to. And the great thing is, is like that, you know, they've, time has proven them right. They are, you know, two of the most iconic and greatest living cartoonists we have. They're omnivores in terms of culture and it shows in the work, you know, the, the work is this like perfect distillation of high and low. And we couldn't ask for like, you know, a better ambassador for, you know, what comics could be than those guys. Can I touch it? Yeah, yeah. And then while I'm doing that, can you share what the um, work product is going to be coming out celebrating their anniversary? Yeah, so we actually just scanned this 
copy of mine because this fall we're publishing as part of the 40th anniversary celebration, we're publishing a eight volume, uh, $400 box set that collects not only the very first 50 issues of Love and Rockets that ran from 1982 to 1997, but also a ton of other stuff. We have combed our archives in a way that's been super fun. Uh, just literally going through uh, entire file cabinets worth of press clippings from the last 40 years and correspondence and putting all this stuff into just this you know giant box set celebration of the series. It's been super fun to work on and to be involved with and it just seemed like a perfect object to kind of bring in here as a totem of, you know, fanographics history. It's fantastic. But, you know, really, we're still just doing what we've done. <laughs> <laughs> That's been a theme today. Yeah. And, and I used to think back in the, you know, years ago, I used to think, oh, maybe one day we'll strike it rich. You know, maybe one day we'll have some incredible bestseller that, you know, we'll be able to finally not feel so financially precarious. And at this point, I really don't care if that happens. I just want us to keep being able to do it. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. To learn more, you can visit fantagraphics.com or stop by the bookstore in Georgetown, maybe on your way to the airport. Join us next time when our guest will be Lisa Fucharte, a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma and the executive director of ALMA, an enormous campus for food, music, and culture housed within Tacoma's hilltop neighborhood. ALMA describes itself as a welcoming and inclusive gathering spot that channels, celebrates, and seeks to nourish the soul of the land, the people on it, the people from it, and those just passing through. It accommodates private studio spaces for up to 20 visual artists and is a fully appointed recording studio. In its size, scope, and execution, it's unprecedented in the Pacific Northwest and has been compared to national art shrines like Santa Fe's Meow Wolf and New Orleans's Music Box Village. And it's currently being stewarded in order to align with indigenous values, including the notion of rematriation, as well as through indigenous food offerings. So stop by next time. There'll be so much to learn and enjoy. Thank you for joining us today. Sound engineering and design by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Mansour. Theme music written by Tomo Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway, with additional music written by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. This episode also featured live and studio music by Pop Defect. I also want to thank the legendary Tom Price of Gas Huffer. We record at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories. <laughs>